Last time we spoke about the landing at Sador and the continuation of advances upon New Guinea and New Britain. Operation Michaelmas was a huge success, isolating countless Japanese and threatening those trying to retreat further north. Taking advantage of the new front on New Guinea, the Australians began pushing more so upon the features across Shaggy Ridge and towards Seo. General Adachi frantically shifted units around in an effort to plug up the multiple advancing Allied units. But in the end, there was little to be done as the Japanese were pushed further and further north. Features were taken upon Shaggy Ridge, and Seo fell nearly uncontested. Over in New Britain, General Rupertus triumphed over the airdrome, and his marines were expanding their perimeters. Katayama made a bold attack against an enemy he overestimated, and it certainly did not pan out for him or his men at Suicide Creek. This episode is The Battle for Shaggy Ridge. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Greg Watson. But before we begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and so much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget our sister podcast over at The Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube. Over there, I just released a full documentary on many of the medals of honor earned during the Battle for Guadalcanal with Dave Holland. It's nearly two hours long. Also, please do check out my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War channel where you can find more exclusive podcasts. This month's exclusive podcast over there is me answering a question. Why did the Japanese perform so many atrocities during World War II? It is a rather difficult and brutal episode to be sure. Please check it out. A while back, I covered the start of the Chinese Indian offensive in the Hukuang Valley and the Arakan regions. When I did so, it was almost entirely from the Allied point of view. But what of that of the IJ war planners? The Burma campaign had been arguably a complete disaster for the Allies. The Japanese had steamrolled them all the way through, claiming vast amounts of territory and key cities and ports. So what really did they need to do but garrison it all? After Wingate unleashed Operation Longcloth, the relatively idle Japanese raised the idea of potentially attacking India. Lieutenant General Mudaguchi Renya, the victor of the Singapore campaign in 1942, was made a commander in Burma, and he wargamed the possibility of attacking India to try and earn support from his superiors at Tokyo General Headquarters. It was his belief they could brush past the British in Assam and reach the gateway into India and he expected the Indians would rise up and greet them with open arms. A lot of money had been spent on Sabhas Chandra Bose and his Indian National Army. The fall of India would be an absolutely devastating blow to the British Empire in Asia, and in 1942, there was even the belief the Japanese could link up with their German allies in the Middle East. But that was 1942, before Stalingrad and Kursk. 1944 was a very, very different geopolitical situation. 
Lieutenant General Hanaya Tadashi, commanding the Arakan Front, was given the task of convincing the British that the counterattack in the Arakan area was the appearance of a main army earmarked to conquer India, thus leading General Slim to send up reserves from Impal. This operation was codenamed Hago, and it was intended to be a feint to mask the real attack upon Impal, designated Operation Yugo. Now, let me dig in a bit deeper into how all of this came about. Until now, General Stilwell had been able to build much of the Lido Road practically unmolested. Yet by early August, General Kawabe Mazukazu, leading the Burma Area Army, was preparing for a counteroffensive. Kawabe did not trust Mudaguchi, and he suspected the man was harboring a megalomaniac design to invade India, which he was 100% right about. For those of you who might not understand, to invade India at this point was completely insane for the Japanese. They simply did not have the resources, manpower, or even the logistical capabilities to do such a thing. India is very big. It has a lot of people. The Japanese certainly could not open up such a front. Not in 1944. Thus, the counteroffensive was really just the beginnings of Operation Yugo, and it had been sold to Tokyo HQ as a preemptive strike to disable the 14th Army and to make it unable to invade the rest of Burma. Thus, General Mutaguchi's 15th Army was given the task of destroying any hostile elements in the Impal region and to establish a strong defensive line. From December the 22nd to the 26th, Mutaguchi held a conference pushing for the possibility of launching Operation Yugo and developing detailed missions for each division, which would participate by means of a war game. At the same time, Kawabe sold the Operation Hago, the diversionary attack in Arakan, with Lieutenant General Hanaya Tadashi's 55th Division earmarked to pin down as much of the enemy units as possible and to draw the British reserves away from the main offensive. When General Christensen's offensive kicked off, this forced Kawabe to reinforce Hanaya with the 54th Division, and this in turn established the 29th Army under the command of General Sakurai on January the 6th. The 29th Army was under the overall command of the Burma Area Army, and its HQ was initially situated in Moulmain. It was assigned to defend the coastal region of Arakan and the lower Irrawaddy Valley, consisting at first of the 55th Division in Arakan and the 54th Division in reserve in Prom. It did have a few garrison units, including the 24th Independent Mixed Brigade in Mulmain as well. It also controlled the 11th Shipping Detachment of Major General Suzuki Gizaburo, consisting of the 11th Shipping Engineer Regiment and the 3rd Sea Transport Battalion. It held roughly 1,105 men, 85 large landing barges, 54 small landing barges, 47 motored sampans, 2 armored boats, 10 fishing boats, 1 messenger boat, and 1 speedboat. The 11th Shipping Detachment was stationed at Taungup, and its main supply depot was at Prom. Meanwhile, after the capture of Maungta, the 5th Indian Division of Major General Harold Briggs was ordered to attack the main Japanese defenses at Razabil. Razabil's defenses were quite formidable. It dominated the crossroads and a road linking Maungta with the tunnels of Bithudang, located three miles eastwards. This formed the 15th Indian Corps' immediate objective following Maungdao's capture. It was dubbed by its Japanese commander, the Golden Fortress of the Mayu Range. It was centered on the railway tunnels running through the Mayu Range, and at point 551 to the east, with a further forward position at point 1301. 
These powerful defenses built carefully, exploiting the rugged mountainous terrain, were tunneled deep into the hills and consisted of bunkers, trenches, and other fire positions located amidst dense jungle and camouflaged with customary Japanese skill. The main outworks at Letwudet to the east and at Razabil to the west of the Mayu Range were major fortresses in their own right, requiring careful reduction before the main position could be tackled. With both bastions in direct line of sight from the tunnels, accurate supporting artillery could be called down with ease. Moreover, adding to these problems already facing troops assaulting the trenches and bunkers dug into the hillsides, they were invulnerable to all but direct hits by medium artillery. The offensive against Razabil was codenamed Operation Jonathan, but it would be delayed until the core artillery became available. At the same time, the 7th Indian Division seized the initiative on January the 18th and launched an attack against the 55th Division's position between Letwidet and Hittenda. The 9th Company 143rd Infantry Regiment was defending a hill east of Hittenda and stood their ground against repeated attacks until January the 24th. The Japanese strongpoints were well dug in on the tops of the narrow ridges. On January the 26th, Major General Briggs ordered the 161st Brigade, with support in the form of Lee Grant tanks, artillery, and aerial bombardment, to attack the Tortoise defended by the 1st Battalion, 143rd Regiment, in the Razabil area. The Tortoise was a horseshoe defensive position that dominated the highway. It was an elaborate system of bunkers, trenches, and all typical Japanese goodies. For the boys in Burma, it would be the first time for most to face such a formidable thing. As Slim wrote in his memoirs, This was the first time we had assaulted an elaborate, carefully prepared position that the Japanese meant to hold to the last. The attack opened up with 12 Volte Vengeance dive bombers of the 3rd Tactical Air Force, 12 Mitchell medium bombers, and 16 Liberator heavy bombers of the Strategic Air Force followed up by even more dive bombers. It was a visually spectacular event to those observing from the ground. It looked truly devastating to the enemy. However, little to no actual damage was inflicted on the strongly constructed Japanese defenses, burrowed so deeply into the hillsides. Similarly, the Mountain Artillery Regiment and a battery from a field regiment did little damage with their bombardment as well. The Japanese had simply pulled back a thousand yards during the bombardments, and by the time the Allies surged forward, they came back to man their main positions. When the Indians began their assault, the fire coming down the steep jungle-clad hillsides was absolutely devastating. The Lee Grant tanks fired from the valley floor and managed to destroy all the identified bunkers. But the exposed Indian troops suffered massive casualties during this. It was virtually impossible to keep the defenders' heads down long enough to advance even 50 yards towards the summit. Things got even worse when the men reached the defensive lines, for now the Lee Grant tanks had to lift their fire lest they hit their own men. By the end of the day, only a toehold had been secured over the lower slopes of Razabil Ridge. The assault carried on for three more days, with intense tank and artillery fire from different directions supporting the infantry as closely as possible. The only immediate effect of the bombardment and indirect fire by 25-pounders and 3.7-inch howitzers was to destroy the vegetation over the hillsides, thus exposing more and more of the Japanese defensive works. During the intense battle, the Lee Grant medium tank proved itself a real solution in providing effective covering fire for infantry, and soon new techniques were evolving. The Japanese defenses were mainly built over the summit of steep, thick, jungle-covered hills, and the Lee Grants provided fire support from positions in paddy fields below. 
The 75mm guns effectively destroyed or at least neutralized bunker positions. A procedure was quickly developed for providing cover during the last stages of infantry assaults. Tanks would use high-explosive shells to clear the vegetation, then delayed action, high-explosive shells to break up the front of visible bunkers, then armor-piercing shells to enable the infantry to advance close behind the creeping barrage as shrapnel was not flying everywhere. All of this combined showed the potential of armor vehicles in jungle warfare, when most claimed they had little practical use in such climates. Despite such developments, the casualties were mounting, little progress was being made. On January the 28th, the 123rd Brigade attacked Japanese positions on the secondary hill of Ren Kat, and its smaller neighbor hill, Ren Kitten. Probably the best hill names I have read on this podcast thus far. Although a personal favorite was always Good Enough Island. And I had a very stupid theory that the Australians were just so lazy when they came up with that name, but it was actually named after somebody. Yes, that one disappointed me. Whenever the Japanese name any of these ridges or hills, it's a lot more depressing. It's like Starvation Hill or the Hill of Endless Sorrows. Meanwhile, the Allies just usually name it after a guy who unfortunately died taking the hill, which I think is a pretty good way to go about it. Now, Ren Cat and Ren Kitten were located on the lower western foothills of the Mayu Range. They were extremely steep, cone-shaped features with fortified circular trenches around their heads. They also had bunkers and bamboo jungle. Firing from these positions on the valley floor with Lee Grants and 5.5-inch artillery was able to destroy some of the bunkers, and then you could switch to armor-piercing rounds to perform creeping barrages for the infantry. Despite the tank and artillery support, the Japanese were throwing a ton of mortar, grenades, and machine gun fire down their way. An officer of the 123rd Brigade involved in the fight had this to say. It appears from our experience that consolidation on the objective, which normally consists of a series of deeply constructed bunkers, connected one with another, is extremely difficult in the very limited time that the enemy would allow. The failures against the Tortoise and Ren Cat prompted General Christensen to call off the attack against Razabil by January the 30th. Christensen regrouped his core artillery and tanks to instead support the 7th Division's assault against Buthadang and Letwidet. Meanwhile, further to the north, General Tanaka had brought 6,300 men of the 55th and 56th regiments to the Hukwang Valley by early January. He wanted to counterattack in strength, but General Mudaguchi believed he could not spare additional motor transport units to give the necessary logistical support to the 18th Division since preparations were already going on for Operation Hugo. Thus, Tanaka ordered his men to perform a delaying action down the Hukwang Valley with the primary objective of holding Kameng, the ridgeline separating Hukwang Valley from the Mogang Valley. Tanaka weighed his orders and the looming monsoon season that hit the area around May or June. Against Tanaka, Stilwell sought to continue his offensive after successfully taking Yopbanga. Stilwell now looked towards Taipaga and convinced both General Wingate and Admiral Mountbatten to unleash the Galahad Long Penetration Unit into the Hukwang Valley. On January the 4th of 1944, Frank Merrill abruptly relieved a disappointed Brink. Despite having a background with cavalry, like Brink, Merrill understood the Japanese strength, but unlike Brink, he respected the chain of command. General Sun met with Stilwell, and they both agreed the bulk of the 114th Regiment should swing widely around Tanaka's left flank, while the 113th Regiment wheeled to the south to hit Tanaka's front along the Tanaka. 
Further north, the 2nd Battalion, 112th Regiment, would also advance east across the Tarung Haka to secure the Waranga. The 65th Regiment would continue their advance towards Taro, fording the Tanai River by January the 9th. South of Kanta, the 3rd Battalion, 114th Regiment, ran into two Japanese companies. The Japanese made it difficult for the Chinese forces to reorganize themselves. The battalion split into four fragments, and not even two of them were in contact. The supporting 6th Battery could not fire until fields of fire were cut, and while that was being carried out, the Japanese companies performed infiltration maneuvers and quickly surrounded the battery. Fighting for their guns and lives between the 9th and 11th of January, the Chinese cannoneers managed to save both. The battalion was nearly wiped out from these Japanese tactics, but thankfully on January the 12th, the regimental HQ arrived and reformed the battalion to launch a concerted attack that managed to gradually push back the Japanese. Three days later, the 2nd Battalion arrived, allowing the 114th Regiment to force a crossing of the Sanepka by January the 16th. Meanwhile, the 1st Battalion, 113th Regiment, forded the Taurang River near Yubanga and sent patrols north to occupy the Tabuanga on January the 13th. From there, they advanced southeast to the Ketujaka, then to Brangbrangka, where they formed a line extending to the junction with the Tunai Bank by mid-January. On January the 21st, the Chinese broke through the Japanese lines north of the Brangbramka and made it to Ningruha, less than one mile downstream from the Taipaka. Simultaneously, the battered 112th Regiment swung wide going northeast of the Waranga, and by the end of January, the 113th continued their advance upon Taipaka, where they would meet even stronger Japanese resistance. They began fighting within 1,500 yards of Taipaka. Artillery support the 4th and 5th batteries, was then brought up. The next 1,000 yards between the 113th Regiment and Taipaka took two days to cross. Then they spent a week in what was called preparations for attack. General Sun's men were now approaching the Japanese strongpoint in the area, and the Japanese resistance was more freely offered, with heavy shelling by 75 and 150 millimeter pieces. At Taipaka, the Kamang Road crossed the Tanai, on a long gravel bar which bullock carts could use quite well. At this point, the village itself, a humble collection of bashas, had been long since burnt out. About 800 yards upstream was a ferry across a stretch of fairly deep water. The Japanese used this ferry to bring supplies across the Tanai River, rather than the vulnerable and easily spotted gravel bar. Here they had their strong point, well prepared and stubbornly defended. Further to the west, the 65th Regiment's advance was much slower than expected for Stillwell. Upon reaching the Hukwang Valley, the 65th's commander, despite means more than ample for his mission, contracted the same lethargy that had hastened the demise of the 112th Regiment. Stillwell was greatly frustrated by the delay, so he ordered Colonel Lau to relieve Colonel Fu. Stillwell wrote in his diary, I told Liao this included division commanders unless they watched their step. Also, that Fu really should be shot. Liao took it okay, though it shook him up. On January the 22nd, General Sun was told about this affair, but the news was softened somewhat by the presentation of a silk banner for the victory at Yupenga, a dramatic contrast of the respective awards for lethargy and vigor. Having made his point, and hoping that he had given the Chinese a healthy shock, Stilwell restored Fu to his command by January the 26th. Fu's later performance in combat was rated as excellent. People often discredit 
the Chinese during World War II as not a very effective fighting force. Indeed, the performance of the Chinese, excluding some of the German-trained divisions at the very beginning of the war in 1937, was lackluster. But you have to remember, the Chinese were suffering from a really large lack of morale. And, I mean, this goes all the way back to the Opium Wars. They were facing the century of humiliation. They as a military had been abused by everybody. And during World War II, for the early part, not until the end, they just kept getting beaten and beaten down. But you can see here in Burma, when the Chinese finally have some morale boost, when they get a few victories going, they start performing quite well. Also in Burma, it's a little bit different than a lot of the battles they would see in the Chinese front, as they were more on par with the Japanese here in terms of resources. It was a much more even fight, I guess you could say. The Chinese managed to encircle the passive 3rd Battalion, 55th Regiment, on January the 23rd, and by the 25th, the last Japanese pockets were wiped out. On the 26th, the Chinese reached the Ahakuka, and on the 28th, crossed the Tower River and occupied Tower on the 30th. This effectively cut behind Tanaka's flank. The 112th were now close enough to the 113th to aid them, so General Sun began an attack against Taipaga on the 30th. The Japanese held on stubbornly for days and would quietly withdraw on the night of February the 4th. Tanaka concluded the loss of the Taro Plain meant the failure of the whole division in its operations along the Tanai River. Thus, Tanaka decided there was no point in continuing the fighting there. Over at Senyip, General Sun ordered the 3rd Bataan 114th Regiment to rest. However, Stilwell thought this was close to disobedience of his orders because he wanted General Sun to move quickly and cut behind the 18th Division. On January the 13th, he had spoken very bluntly to Sun, asking him what orders he gave the 114th Regiment, and if there had been any word from Chang Qing to slow the operation. Stilwell told Sun if he could not exercise the command that Peanut had given him, he would resign and report the whole affair to the United States government. Regardless of what anyone else may say, I assure you that my report will be fully believed in Washington. General Sun was confronted with the prospect the Chinese lethargy in the North Burma front might mean the withdrawal of U.S. help from China. Stilwell, Sun was told, had been alone in his fight to convince the United States that the Chinese army was worth helping. If I am double-crossed by the people, I am trying to help. I am through for good, and I will recommend very radical measures. Stilwell closed by saying that he had done his part. Would General Sun reciprocate? But despite Stilwell's arguments and threats, General Sun did not meet Stilwell's ideas of how a dynamic field commander should conduct himself. Thus, the 114th gradually began to dislodge the Japanese from their positions along the river bank, taking care to annihilate all pockets behind them. Stilwell was very satisfied with the progress of his offensive, and he established the Northern Combat Area Command on February the 1st. This organization would be led by Brigadier General Hayden Boatner, and would include American, British, and Indian units entering North Burma. But that is it for the wild Burma front. Now we need to travel over to New Guinea. Last time we were in New Guinea, Brigadier Chilton's 18th Brigade had just completed their advance upon Shaggy Ridge and Brigadier Hammer's 15th Brigade had just relieved the 25th Brigade on January the 7th. Thus, two brigades were flown in and two were flown out. 
showcasing how far the Allied New Guinea Air Forces had increased their efficiency during the war. The New Guinea force was now under the command of General Milford, though Vesey still retained his task of, quote, containing hostile forces in the Bogajimramu area by rigorous action of fighting patrols against enemy posts. The division's role was still to prevent enemy penetration into the Ramu Markham Valley, from Medang to protect the Gusap airfield and the various radar installations, as was instructed to the division, quote, to create the impression of offensive operations against the Bogajim Road by vigorous local minor offensive actions. This was to be done by holding in strength with two brigades a line of localities, from Tom's Post on the right to the Mene River on the left, the boundary between the 18th on the right and the 15th on the left being a line from Bebe through Herald Hill to Kankari Saddle. In addition, the 18th Brigade would, quote, by raids and harassing tactics ensure that no major Jap withdrawal takes place undetected and occupy the Mijim Faria Divide and the high ground to the north and south of it, as the administrative position permits. The 15th Brigade would hold the Yogiameni River area, delay any enemy advance up the Ramu from the Avapia River, patrol the Solo River, and deny the 5,800 and 5,500 features to the enemy. Despite all of this, Vesey was also preparing to assault the Kankiri Saddle with the fresh 18th Brigade. Designated Operation Cutthroat, the seizure of the Kankiri Saddle, and ultimately that of Shaggy Ridge, Vesey planned to launch an attack against Mount Prothoro, which at the time was being defended by the 6th Company, 78th Regiment. He would attack it from the south, preceded by a diversionary attack against Camp Saddle. Brigadier Chilton realized, however, that frontal attacks along Shaggy Ridge would not be able to achieve surprise, so he instead wanted to attempt a wide encircling maneuver to the left flank via Canning Saddle to attack Prothoro directly. The 18th Brigade spent the early part of January patrolling to see if it was possible to advance through Canning Saddle to Prothero 1, while simultaneously and stealthily building a road to Canning's, in preparation for the coming offensive. The possibility of occupying Prothero from Canning Saddle had been suggested to Chilton by Lieutenant Colonel Lang of the 2 and 2nd Pioneers, after a patrol performed by Captain McGuinness. Captain McGuinness had found an approach along a steep, razor-backed spur within a short distance of Prothero's summit, where they could hear some Japanese. Meanwhile, the 2 and 9th Battalion had sent a patrol that found a possible track from McGully's Ridge via Gaten's Hill to Mene River. Going up the riverbed led one to Canning Saddle. Two companies of the 2 and 12th spent a few days constructing a track going to the Mene River, and they took special precautions to prevent the enemy from finding out. Reconnaissance patrols in general were careful to avoid contact with the enemy. So was the case around Pathero. The jeep track was hurriedly pushed to Guy's Post, existing tracks were improved, and better tracks were constructed to improve the supply routes to Shaggy Ridge and the main stream. Reserves of supplies in forward areas were built up, thus enabling a concentration of as many natives as possible to carry for the attacking battalion on the left, and arrangements were made for a limited airdropping campaign for Canning Saddle at an appropriate time. To support the upcoming attack, nine long and two short 25-pounders of the 2 and 4th Field Regiment were brought up along with 7,000 shells. The guns had been dragged forward to Lake Guy's post area. Lieutenant Colonel Charles Bourne's 2 and 12th Battalion was to head the attack. Chilton had also planned to have Lieutenant Colonel Charles Gerd's 2 and 10th Battalion perform a diversionary attack through Camp Saddle, 
After Prothero 1 was captured, the 2 and 10th were to exploit north of the Kankiri Saddle and south of the mainstream area. While Lieutenant Colonel Clement Cummings, 2 and 9th Battalion, attacked northwest along Shaggy Ridge to join up with the 2 and 12th. By January 18th, the 4,000-yard track to Gaten's Hill was complete, allowing the 18th Brigade to advance. On that same day, B-25 Mitchell bombers unleashed their cannons and bombed the enemy positions at the junction of Mainstream, the Faria, and Shaggy Ridge as well. They dropped 60 delayed action bombs over the Farai River Valley, and some modified Mitchell sporting 75mm cannons mounted on their chins fired upon the crest of the ridges. This cannon, the same used by Sherman tanks, was quite formidable. To enable its fire, the nose of the B-25G model had to be shortened, and the cannon breech was positioned behind the pilot where it could be loaded by the navigator for firing. To fire it, the pilot would press a button on his control wheel. The weapon would prove inefficient against shipping, but it would be a lot more successful at hitting ground targets. Over three successive days from the 18th to the 20th of January, the Mitchells flew 180 sorties against Shaggy Ridge, firing 135 rounds of 75mm at the ridge as well as dropping over 200 tons of bombs. The aircraft also fired about 90,000 rounds of 50 cal. The machine gun salvos were particularly devastating. From his accompanying boomerang, Alex Miller Randall recalled, Mitchell stripped the trees of Shaggy Ridge clean and shattered the limbs and trunks to matchsticks. D-Day was to be the 20th, seeing the 2 and 10th on the right and the 2 and 12th on the left. Captain Cumnick's company of the 2 and 10th advanced to Grassy Patch, and over on the left, a party of the 2 and 12th, led by Major Frazier, took Vanguard. All of the preliminary actions were completed back on the 19th, when Captain Gunn's A Company of the 2 and 10th advanced from Tom's Post for Sprague's Ridge via a Japanese mule track. Later, Captain Humnick's D Company would use the same track. Over on the left, the 2 and 12th Battalion and B and D Company of the 2 and 2nd Pioneers advanced along the new line of communication to Guyton's. At 8.45, Captain Gunn's company advanced from Sprague's Ridge to attack Camp Saddle, followed 30 minutes later by Captain Komnick's company. Operation Cutthroat opened up with artillery and B-25 Mitchell bombardments against the Protheros and the Kankiri Saddle. By 11 a.m., Captain Gunn was 300 yards from the enemy position on Camp Saddle, with artillery shelling the position until 12.30. Then the Australians would find the enemy had withdrawn. Farther on, Captain Gunn's men would be pinned down by Japanese defending the western end of the saddle, as Japanese patrols ambushed a signal line party 500 yards behind it. Gunn initially tried to outflank the enemy, but then withdrew 200 yards and dug in for the night, astride the mule track. At the same time, the 2 and 12th Battalion reached Canning Saddle by 3.30 p.m. The next morning, the 2 and 12th began to silently creep along the Razorback Ridge towards Prothero 1, with Cameron's C Company taking the lead. At this point, Frazier, Captain Cameron's C Company, Captain Gason's A Company, and Captain Thomas's D Company enveloped the ridge. They nearly achieved surprise, but the Japanese discovered their advance and rapidly turned their mountain gun upon them, causing many casualties. Despite the mountain gun fire, Lieutenant Braithwaite's 8th Platoon charged the Japanese and captured the mountain gun upon Prothero 1. The action cost 11 Australian lives with another 44 wounded. The 2 and 12th had thus captured the key point in the Japanese defensive system upon Shaggy Ridge. After the loss of the mountain gun position, Colonel Matsumoto ordered his men to pull back closer to the Kankiri Saddle. In the process, the 2 and 10th were able to capture Cam Saddle. 
On that same day, the 209th began their attack, sending A Company to envelop the Green Sniper's Pimple, defended by a platoon of the 78th Regiment. A Company managed to seize the position using stealth and would be met by failed counterattacks. By the end of the day, the Japanese defenders were now sandwiched between the 209th to the south and the 212th to the north, while the 210th were advancing from the east. Way further to the east, General Nakano's men were in an even more dire situation. After the evacuation of Seo, the Japanese were forced to retreat day and night under heavy rainfall, hindered by rough terrain and Allied aerial attacks. Lieutenant General Yoshihara Kane, chief of the staff for the 18th Army, recalled this of the march. The most wearing part was that with these ranges, when they climbed to the craggy summit, they had to descend and then climb again, and the mountain seemed to continue indefinitely, until they were at the extreme of exhaustion. Especially when they trod the frost of Nokobo Peak, they were overwhelmed by cold and hunger. At times, they had to make ropes out of vines and rattan and adopt rock-climbing methods. Or they crawled and slipped on the steep slopes. Or on the waterless mountain roads, they cut moss in their potatoes and steamed them. In this manner, for three months, looking down at the enemy beneath their feet, they continued their move. Another thing which made the journey difficult was the valley streams, which were not usually very dangerous. At times, however, there was a violent squall, for which the finestries are famous during the rainy season. Then these valley streams, for the time being, flowed swiftly and became cataracts. Then there were many people drowned. General Shoge was swept away by one of these streams on one occasion, but fortunately managed to grasp the branch of a tree, which was near the bank, and was able to save one of his nine lives. The men were malnourished. Fatigued, but kept going day by day, anticipating an abundant food supply at Galley. When they reached Galley in late January, they would find nothing there. This anguish was just the beginning for them. The base had been shelled by Allied warships and bombed by Allied aircraft. General Moriya was injured on January the 17th during the bombardment. Luckily for the Japanese, there was no offensive towards Galley. Since the Seder landing, General Martin's men were busy expanding their perimeter, with outposts extending towards Sel and Belau. Martin was reinforced with the 1st and 3rd battalions of the 128th Regiment on January the 16th. Although Martin believed launching an eastern attack upon the withdrawing enemy would provide an excellent opportunity to destroy some of their divisions, General Kruger refused to permit such a thing. This was because the 32nd Division was required for an upcoming offensive in the Hansa Bay area. Meanwhile, General Nakai had brought the bulk of his detachment over the Mott River area and established a strong outpost on Gambubi. Nakai had also sent the 3rd Battalion, 239th Regiment, to Belau to try and contest the control over its area. On January the 12th, the Japanese attacked Belau, forcing the Americans to retreat behind the river. Thirty Americans then tried to retake the outpost there the following day, but they were repelled by the Japanese. On January the 15th, the Japanese withdrew, allowing the 1st Battalion, 128th Regiment, to occupy it back on January the 20th. Another Japanese attack on January the 26th would force them to retreat yet again, and two days later, the Americans were successfully ambushed when they tried to reoccupy the outpost. Nakano's men had thus successfully carried out a fighting withdrawal from Lei. They had suffered horribly for it, crossing unbelievably difficult terrain, with basically no supplies, apart from the meager amounts that they were given through airdrops or that they brought over via submarine. 
but now they needed to break through towards Medang, and there were only three possible options of doing so. Option number one, they could advance along the coast, but this one was disregarded immediately because they would have to break directly through the new American defenses. Option number two, codenamed Option A, would be an advance inland through the Kabutaman, Monera, Sibong, and Balao towards Mindiri. Option three, codenamed Option B, was an advance even further inland crossing over the foothills of the Finestri through Nakopo, Kwambum, Yuga Yuga, Gambumi, and Singor towards Mindiri. Nakano elected to send the 20th Division over Option A, while his division would advance through Option B. On January the 23rd, the 51st Division departed Gali along the B route, while the 1st Battalion 115th Regiment and General Katagiri's 20th Division would advance through A route. Katagiri's 80th Regiment and 20th Engineer Regiment tried the best that they could, but the march was only advancing a single kilometer per day. Katagiri's troops had to cut through some very dense jungle, and they were facing strong enemy patrols along their route. Facing greater difficulties than expected, Katagiri decided to follow Nakano's 51st Division along Option A. Yet unbeknownst to him, the 3rd Battalion 126th Regiment had just established a new outpost at Sibang and the Paramusi on January the 22nd. From there, they would be sending out patrols to Langani and Singaman. The Americans could still not break through Nakai's defenses at Gambume, giving the Japanese at least some relief. The bulk of Nakano's forces were withdrawing smoothly, seeing just sporadic harassment from American patrols. On the 1st of February, the 1st Battalion 115th Regiment finally made contact with Nakai's forces at Kambumi, while the bulk of the 51st Division advanced through Yuga Yuga. A week later, Nakano himself reached the Gambumi and began advancing towards Medang. By the 16th of February, the 1st Battalion 115th Regiment reached Medang and the 20th Division had successfully pulled out of Gambumi. Late February would see 1,667 men in total arrive to Medang, 5,469 would reach Sangor, and 1,235 would reach Gambume. Thus, 80% of Nakano's strength had effectively withdrawn. Nakai had also managed to collect 500 patients that had been abandoned at Yuga Yuga, and he brought them over to Medang by March the 1st. It seems once again, Nakano's men had escaped doom. On the other side, Brigadier Cameron had just begun his advance towards Sedar on January the 25th. His 4th Battalion, led by Lieutenant Colonel Percy Krosky, with a Papuan company, reached Kari on January the 28th. Without even taking a break, they continued towards Singor the very next day, then Malasanga and Crossing Town by the 31st. The race was still on. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Over there, I just released a full two-hour documentary on many of the medals of honor earned during the Guadalcanal campaign featuring Dave Holland. Also, please check out my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel where you can find more exclusive podcasts. This month's exclusive podcast over there is me answering the question as to why the Japanese performed so many atrocities during World War II. It goes pretty in-depth, and it's rather gruesome. Check it out. It means a lot to me. 
the Japanese were slowly but surely losing their hold over Shaggy Ridge. With the loss of the vital artillery position, it was just a matter of time before the Australians took over the area. Meanwhile, Nakano's great retreat was a success. But one does not win a war by moving backwards.